So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. The opposite of what I've been doing now in my startup, but they had a sizable media budget and our big uh, competitor was PlayStation. It was like Xbox and PlayStation. Nintendo at the time, you know, just kind of had died down a little bit. And and so it was us as two players. And so it was this series of, and as the media director, I worked with the advertising group to get our amazing creative and ads in front of people in the right media spaces, whether it was in an ad at the Super Bowl or on billboards in Times Square or if it was paid through influencers on Reddit. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Jill Angelo. Jill, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. So tell, tell people about your business here. Yeah, you know, I, I co-founded and, and started and runs Genev, which is really a an online digital health platform for women in menopause. Think of it as an online clinic. The first thing that we do is telemedicine um, access. Women can book appointments with our team of gynecologists that specialize in menopause care. We also have a really vibrant community and base of free education. And then third, we also offer over-the-counter products like supplements and hygiene products that um, provide relief for menopause symptoms. And you've been doing this almost six years. Is that right? Am I, how am I doing on timing? wise? Yeah. You know, we actually went live 2016. So just under that about five years. So yes, five years in. Okay. And then before that, looks like you did some fun stuff at Microsoft and, and elsewhere in tech. I did. I spent 20 years in the tech industry. That's the only thing I've known besides women's healthcare in the last five And, uh, you know, I loved it. I started early on at a small software company in Fargo, North Dakota. I'm from North Dakota and it was awesome. It was, you know, ERP and CRM uh, software. And we took the company public and Microsoft acquired us. And so I moved out to Seattle and worked for Microsoft for about 15 years. That's fun. And, And you get a little bit of time in the mountains in between. I do. Yeah, I love, you know, obviously Seattle's not a bad place to be close to the mountains, but certainly love the drier snow of Utah and have have been there, you know, on and off for the last, gosh, I think five years and and plan to be there more substantially in the future. I'm, I'm also a fan. So at Microsoft, these look like some pretty interesting roles. Can you talk about chief of staff to the chief marketing officer, Xbox media director, director of consumer media, what what some of the things involved there were? Yeah, you know, I, so first and foremost, I'm a marketer and a business builder. And, you know, I think like I spent 15 years at Microsoft and when you're at a big company that long, you kind of reinvent yourself and you've got the the permission to do so because there's so many different areas of the company that you can work in. And, and that, I loved it. It was just a fabulous time in my career. When I started at the company, I started in working with channels like developer partners and reseller partners and all the all the channels in which Microsoft worked to you know grow, grow the business and, and earn money and have new developer partners build on top of our platform. And loved that, but it led me to do product management for our emerging markets. And so I traveled the world in that role and really worked on establishing new technologies that did good in that emerging market, as well as were sustainable from a business perspective. So it had a little bit of a a philanthropic bent, which was a fun role. 
And that then led me to the chief of staff role. As the chief of staff to the chief marketing officer, you're just, you're the right hand and you kind of do whatever that leader needs to make them successful. My role in that area, a lot was functioning in a lot of communications, senior leadership team development. I worked a lot with our senior women's network at Microsoft and ran that program. And then it led me into really working across some of our consumer brands on the media side. And that is what drove me into Xbox and, and overall consumer products and media. And while I'm not a gamer, I certainly learned a lot about gaming while I was focused on Xbox and loved it. There's nothing like getting close to customers in a consumer marketing role. And that's really what I got to do there. So which emerging markets did you get to work in? You know, predominantly with Southeast Asia and and Eastern Europe is where we were focusing at the time. A little bit in China, but mostly, you know, focused on Southeast Asian markets, India, a lot of India. And at the time, and I wouldn't obviously say India is much of an emerging market anymore, but at the time it certainly was. And, and then Eastern Eastern Europe. Any, any tips for entrepreneurs listening or, you know, in investors who are investing in companies that want to expand internationally, just from your experience? You know, I think it's so important to get to know the culture versus just looking at the numbers. You've got to understand how people work. Styles, work styles are so different. A yes in India is different than a yes in Poland in terms of, or, and I can do this, or we can deliver on that or meet that KPI is different, deliver is different between markets and understanding those nuances. You don't understand them unless you have feet on the ground there, or you have been on the ground yourself. Don't underestimate. It's not as simple as I've grown it really well in the United States. It's going to knock it out of the park there. You've got to understand the dynamics of the market, the culture, the people, and and how they live. They live in different increments than we do in the U.S. In the U.S., we we go to Costco to load up on products, and we you know and and in other markets you don't do that because you don't have the space, you don't have the means to do that. You operate day to day in in much smaller increments of products. So get to know the culture is my biggest tip for anyone looking to invest more broadly. And and what about for you know, you look at technology and things that have done so well in the developed world that would be easy to want to do a cut and paste for the developing world. How did you how did you think through like adapting to the financial realities when you've got the same product you want to sell in certain ways? Yeah, I, I think, first of all, you've got to take off any ego that you might have in a developed market or in the U.S. because the first thing, if you don't do that, you're going to fail. And, and so that's a personal change you need to make beyond any economics and modeling that you might want to do. I think going back to, you know, understanding any kind of cut and paste, I think get back to the core value and the need for your product or service that you built it for, that you created it for, or why it's been successful in the U.S. or in a market and then look to see if that same measure of success or that same need exists in the market that you want to move into and then figure out how you'll get there. But first start with the customer. And I think too often we get excited about, oh, I've got a distributor that can take me into this market. Or, you know, you've got one friend that says, oh, it would be amazing. We don't have your thing here. And I I think you've got to stop first to understand does again at the at the core of it does your consumer mindset and need exist in that market in the same way or is the need and consumer mindset the same but how they might acquire it differently or different so uh, go back to the customer that's that's the number one thing i can't reinforce enough and and thinking about you know if somebody's a ceo of a business they've got the time constraints there's the travel issues this idea of spending time there sounds great. And then you got to balance it with reality. How, what, what kind of advice would you have of like, Hey, don't be silly and do it without some boots on the ground. And here's how I would balance the realities of having to run the rest of the world where you are already, or back in the States where you are already maybe. Well, I think this past, if, if 2020 taught us anything, it's that we can do a lot remote and, you know, you make the best of it. And so my advice would be, again, you've got to have focus groups. You've got to have people who live there. No amount of data and research is going to tell you any different. And so if you physically can't be there, if you've got constraints financially or time or whatever, then what's the next best thing? The next best thing, because you'd go there and hopefully talk to customers anyhow, um, why not get those customers on a Zoom call or on a on a phone call or something, track them, 
quote unquote, live with them on a regular basis remotely and see how that, how that feels. It feels probably daunting, like, ah, oh, I don't have the time. Well, if you don't put in the time to do that, you're more than likely not going to succeed. So that's, that's kind of the first priority you've got to focus on. Well, let's relate this a little bit to Genev. You know, the it's interesting. We've had in the last month, we've had two other female CEOs who are using tech to approach women's healthcare and and making one in Southern California, one in uh, New York. They're making great strides. So it's obvious there's obviously a real need about the ways the medical system has let women down, you know. But I think my question is, I just finished a show right before this one with this great woman, Beatriz Acevedo. She's she's really bringing financial literacy products to kind of the Gen Z Latino and Latina community and kind of like, but not in Spanish. It's interesting. It's like the English speaking, but but Latino culture, right? So I'm interested you know, you could think of women's health as being so common of women or women, right? But there are so many cultural backgrounds, even within this country. Do you have any thoughts about, or just experiences over the last five or six years of whether it's different parts of the country, whether it's different cultural or racial backgrounds or anything like that of like how how you've marketed and got the word out? You know, I, so first of all, our demographic is kind of women in their forties through their sixties. And it's this middle age of women who, in all, in all, um, circum, you know, in all, uh, in all sorts of ways, has been kind of invisible or forgotten about when it comes to big media advertising or brands or or healthcare. Unfortunately, there's a lot of innovation that has happened in, you know, fertility or maternity, but nothing for women after that. And you know, guess what? Like my population, like half. Not every woman's going to have a baby every woman's going to go through this menopause change. And most people on this podcast might not know what menopause is. It's basically puberty the second time around, but the opposite thing happens. So all those hormones that flooded our bodies, whether you're male or female, as a woman, they're going to exit your body during menopause and it creates all sorts of symptoms and changes. And so that's what our healthcare platform is really addressing. There's a lot of like social nuances as well around it's a taboo topic or, you know, do women of different ethnic backgrounds experience those symptoms differently? And I think all in all, we know very little about this particular part of women's health because no attention, doctors are not educated on it. Very little research has been done. And so when I think about us as a platform and how do we approach this audience in a way that addresses the nuanced differences between an African-American woman versus an Asian woman versus a Caucasian woman or a Latina woman. It's, we don't, we don't, we don't ignore that. Like we take it to heart. And for me coming from the technology space, I am very much data driven and data led in what I do. So when I look at a space where menopause in so many ways, this is something I always say, we're in the business of earning women's trust. We have to, like, they're not going to, they can't, we can't just sell to them. And that's one thing I've learned, like build a relationship so that they trust you because a lot of women in healthcare and especially African-American women don't trust the healthcare system because they've been so overlooked. And so we have to work extra hard to say, we understand this part of women's health. Here's the educational resources. You go at your pace. And as you're ready to work with us, and if you trust us and this is how we can help you, then we're here. And so how we start to build that relationship is number one, we publish a lot of content. We optimize it in search for what women are searching on. And, and we know a lot about that. But when they come to Genev.com, we then have a menopause assessment. And in that assessment, we understand the racial and ethnic background. And so we knew the, the makeup of our audience and we knew we could correlate it back to the symptoms that they told us. So we've got that data and we're now using that to promote and provide solution recommendations to them. But for a long time, that audience was not representative of the US census. If you were to look at you know, the population distribution, and so in the past 12 months, we've been very intentional in terms of getting that assessment in front of African-American women. And there's ways you can do that in your marketing and so forth. Show African-American women, you know, in your creative or in your copy. And it's when you're intentional about something, you reach an audience in a way that you wouldn't have otherwise reached them. So, you know, I think it's very important. There's so much yet that we have to learn, but we're starting to get there in terms of just addressing them in a way that that is really specific to them. Yeah, you know, I'm interested in this because you think of like mass overgeneralizations, right? Like men are constantly being told you're not rich enough, you're not tough enough, 
right? And women are being told you're not beautiful enough, you're not young enough, and then there's a whole list of other not enoughs, right? But but specifically, and I, I was listening to one of your couple of your other interviews with an issue with an issue that there could almost be resistance of acknowledging from a customer, like it's happening either way, but maybe we don't want to talk about it. Maybe it's not something public, you know, it, it, you know, it's, it could be resisted against and especially being a part of community around it. How have you overcome that? Or how have you broken through that? Or what's that look like? It's hard. You know, when I, when I built Geneva, when I started it, we thought, oh, once we create this safe place for this kind of conversation and community, women will just come. Like they'll be telling their girlfriends, the referral, the viral effect of what we do will just be off the charts. And it hasn't been the case. And part of that is it's still a part of women's health that they're very discreet about. And so when we do try to break through and foster that sort of community, if you will, that makes, I think, any business really successful or, or help us even deliver on our mission to put women in control of their health. We've had to learn how to engage them in the community mechanism in the, which, in the way that they want to engage. Some women, they just want to lurk and consume content. So we have an incredible platform of articles that are medically backed. We have a really a growing podcast community. And then we've got those women who want to have a two-way uh, relationship with us back and forth. We have web seminars. When COVID hit, we had them weekly. We also have a private Facebook group where the chatter every day is really, really busy and dynamic and helpful because it's women helping women. And then for those women who are like, no, I don't want a big part of these big forums. I want more small group or one-on-one. That's where our services really kick in. And so we want to show women that there are different levels of community or engagement that they can associate themselves with based upon where they're at and what they're comfortable doing, because not everybody wants, wants community or wants that type of engagement. You know, I think our, our big theme so far we've been working on this year on the show is we have all these different kinds of experts on the show. And we ask like, what's some advice, whether it's for an entrepreneur, an investor, a philanthropist on how they can achieve more with less, like based on your experience, how does that apply kind of no matter what you're working on, right? And as you're talking, I'm thinking about like, you know, our one company, our investment firm, right? We we're working with, you know, big giant family offices, but kind of the next population that we want to go for is kind of the wealthier entrepreneur who's like, they're not, they're not like, they're not super rich yet. They like, you know, they want, they still want to make some aggressive returns. You know, maybe they're single digit millions, but they're comparing themselves to people much further along than that. So they want to get ahead and they think real estate's safe, but but they, but they almost have this shame that they, everybody thinks they should understand money because they're rich. And they became rich by hyper-focus on one little business and getting customers and serving customers there. It doesn't make them automatically an expert on all things finance, right? So, I mean, you think, I think about how many of my entrepreneur buddies are like me who would like t- do taxes by sticking receipts in shoeboxes and then handing it all to an accountant at an end of a year, right? And like, you know, you hear about, especially like, it's almost required to have some ADD to be an entrepreneur, it seems like, right? And how many entrepreneurs can't do their own books, but they can tell you how much is in their accounts, right? So, you know, people are pontificating about Bitcoin or Warren Buffett or these kind of things. And there can be this kind of like trepidation to not bring up that you actually don't know what somebody means, that you that you actually don't know what an ETF is and whether that's a high risk thing or a low risk thing, you know, right? And so it is something that we thought about of like, how can we, how can we work with this group who they kind of have a little bit of a high opinion of themselves because they've accomplished something that other people haven't. But I mean, think about a sports star, super rich, but didn't have to go to, you know, investment banking school, right? So I'm interested for anybody who's working on a sector that there might be some resistance to getting the help they need, how you would like take those principles and apply them as maybe a general, like what you've done and how you'd apply it as a general principle for other sectors. That's a really big question. You know, I'd say first and foremost, and and I'll give you just a real example of how we started in a super, super scrappy way because we had no money and no one wanted to invest in menopause for many, for for a number of years. Like the funding and the venture that we've brought in in the last, you know, since 2019 has been recent. And so early on, we studied, we we said, you know what, at least our, our survey, our research told us women 
went into menopause knowing nothing. So we're like, okay, we have a consumer and she's in, she's suffering, but she doesn't even know what she needs because she doesn't even understand this change that her body's going through or to associate the symptoms she's experienced with hormone change, hormonal change. So we said, how do we start to tackle that? Well, number one, education. How, where do women go for education? Well, they're searching for it online. And so we started building content, super scrappy, myself and a, a content writer, we started interviewing anybody working with this audience. And then to get it discovered, we had no money for Google AdWords or, or search terms. And to this day, we've still not spent anything on Google AdWords. And we've got 100,000 unique users every single month coming to our platform. And it's been because we have really studied what women search in the early days, super early. We looked at the most are, are you doing that like google trends or where are you what tools are you using or how are you discovering what they're searching you know just yeah in terms of google trends in terms of typing in searches and looking to see what the results are that kind of come up we we started super scrappy now we have an seo person that's using you know tools and tool sets that we've equipped him with but in the early days we looked at the nuanced searches that had few searches versus like, am I in menopause or menopause specialist near me? Those are big searches that someone was buying up. Whereas we looked at really small symptoms like tingling fingers, cold flashes, you know, things that were, had smaller search volume, but we could publish content for earn domain authority as a top three listing for that particular item. And then it trained the Google algorithm to give us domain authority. So we had more permission over time to start publishing on more popular topics that had higher traffic volumes. And that's how we have built ourselves organically to get the kind of traffic that we're acquiring. It's helped now with some press and other things layering in, but we haven't had to buy our way there. And so my advice around going to an audience that might not know they need you or the latent need is so deep in within them, you've got to first educate them and then, you know, go where they are. For us, it was, again, really understanding what are women suffering from? How does that map up with where they're going to find the information? And then how do we get our stuff even in the playing field to begin with, with no money? Those were three kind of challenges or problems we had to solve and then, and have it accrue to the kind of growth that you want to see. So that was the journey we went on. I think content marketing is a super economical, great and thought leader sort of way to get into market, but it's not the get rich quick sort of scheme that I think a lot of people look for, like in Facebook ads or something like that. And so you've got to, you've got to work your ass off, you know, you've got to work really hard to start to build up the kind of domain authority that you want with very little money. You know, I feel like there's so many good things you've covered there. I think the, maybe the first takeaway I'll start with is this idea of beginning with what your ideal clients are searching instead of making the content first, assuming, you know, what they search and then figure out how to bring people to it. You know, I, you know, I've had some big ups and bigs downs, you know, entrepreneurially in the last 20 years. And so I get a lot of people over the years coming, like talking to me about the business they want to start and asking for advice and these kind of things. And I never want to be like, well, you should probably start a private equity fund. <laughs> you know, like that's not a good, that's not a beginner business, right? One of my favorite books I found recently though, is the guy who wrote Ask, uh, Ryan Levesque, his new book called Choose. And it basically goes through saying, hey, start with an information business, whether it's, uh, you know, a membership site or books or stuff like this. But like, you know, you can build you can build these businesses where you don't have to be as consistent. You don't have to have staff. You don't have to have inventory. You can do, you know, 100% profit margin kind of things. But what I really love about it is his methodology for going through Google searches and going through Amazon searches and beginning with what people are searching for instead of beginning with your great idea right? And it's like doing it in reverse. And it's like, man, talk about taking so much of the risk out of an initial attempt into entrepreneurship for people when they can pick something. And he shows you, he has this whole methodology for doing like the, don't try to compete in the terms where you'd have to boil the ocean, but still you want to do this so that it's enough search traffic. You can make some money. Right. And kind of like Goldilocks, where's the sweet spot. And I think about as entrepreneurs, 
we typically are maybe a little overly optimistic, maybe a little overly confident. We obviously don't know much about statistics, hence the reason we're doing a startup, right? But this idea of start with what they're searching and build for that. And and then what you've done there of like, pick a term that you can own really hard. I mean, what a great more with less principle compared to having to buy domain authority, you know, if that's even possible, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and two, you're never going to be able to compete with the entrenched bigger brands that have bigger budgets. If you want to disrupt an industry or a space, you've got to you've got to be disruptive in the way that you work and you can't go the same way that they have. So for us, it wasn't a choice, but it certainly was an incredible learning. And I'm glad we took that route because we certainly, you know, are a lot smarter because of it. And we have super big, massive spreadsheets of keywords and phrases that more than most people probably collect on menopause, but but we have it and it's been a, a good batch of work for us to do. You know what though, what doesn't take work, right? Like yeah. we we just had two more tech companies in Utah hit billion dollar valuations this month. Actually a guy who's been on the show, Alex Bean, his company Divi, and then another, another one, interesting guy I had lunch with years ago. It's called MX. It's like, it's basically like mint.com, but he lets banks white label it. Uh, and it's more powerful anyways. And like those businesses aren't built fast. Those are like people who get in for the long haul and they're going to, they're going for the gold. They're going to take it all the way. And so they are willing to invest without those immediate returns up front. And in the long run, it's like, I don't know, it's like the long short way, right? Because it, because of that ramp up effect over time. Yeah. Well, tell me this, L- let's switch back. So talk about being a media director, the Xbox media director. What, what were you doing day to day on that? You know, Xbox had a big advertising budget, so the opposite of what I've been doing now in my startup, but they had a sizable media budget and our big uh, competitor was PlayStation. It was like Xbox and PlayStation. Nintendo at the time, you know, just kind of had died down a little bit. And and so it was us as two players. And so it was this series of, and as the media director, I worked with the advertising group to get our amazing creative and ads in front of people in the right media spaces, whether it was in an ad at the Super Bowl or on billboards in Times Square, or if it was paid through influencers on Reddit forums, you know, we we ran the gamut. And I really came to understand the gamer community is so, it's a passionate community. And that's what I loved about that. Like you could, it was fascinating to get inside their heads. They weren't just the you know, kids sitting at home, you know, looking for what they could buy on, you know, whatever gamer forum or, or whatever. This was like hardcore, you know, adult gamers who are, you know, into weekend gaming with their buddies through, you know, Xbox Live Network. And and these were, you know, the prototype of this consumer, you couldn't just put in a single bucket. And that's what I appreciated. It was the wealthy executives that loved to game on the weekends with their with their brothers or their sisters or female gamers that had their own community. It was, you know, those that were really centered around a particular game. And, and so we had all these pockets of different audiences and they were influenced in different ways. And we knew that we always needed that broad air cover of the big ads and the television and the the spots during the NFL games. But then we also knew that we really needed to play really, really well with influencers. And I loved how dynamic it was and how much it continued to challenge us. And if we made a wrong move, we heard about it immediately from our community because they were so like rabid. And that to me showed, wow, if you get a rabid community that is just so fired up about what you do, and and they look like in and there's 20 different shades of them or they they're not just one occupation or age group or whatever and you you embrace that you can have a really powerful almost movement in what you do and so it, i guess it it taught me the power of diversity diversity in your marketing diversity in how you think about your business the diversity of your customer and to not ever think one aspect of that community was more important than the others. Yeah, you're always going to have the 20, 80%, 80-20, you know, the the 20% that fuel and maybe bring in 80% of the revenue, but it was but the 80% is really what brought us to the top or could kill us overnight as well in terms of their perception, customer satisfaction, you know, just the virality of it. So that was, that was Xbox. That was my Xbox world. And that's what I really appreciated the most was just how we were in a, we were, we were there to fuel this community. So interesting question to me there is 
thinking about, you know, a lot of TV advertising sometimes gets accused of being overpriced compared to digital or newer platforms, right? But then you look at something like a Super Bowl ad and, you know, your cost per impression can actually be better than social or things like that because you have such a concentrated... Any, any thoughts about approaching a Super Bowl ad? What that's like? Yeah, you know, and I, it, Microsoft has done obviously a couple of Super Bowl ads and and I was on the periphery of, you know, really some of the teams uh, thinking about it. It was very much, you didn't, you on those kinds of ads, you don't measure the ROI as much as you measure it almost as a public service announcement. <laughs> you know, it is the largest live audience you'll have. And there's such risk. It's either make it or break it because the ads are so scrutinized and they're so, and they're ranked and rated in such competition. And, and, you know, it was kind of like, wow, we could really fail at this or we can knock it out of the park and it's high risk, high reward. And that I think in, in part beyond the glitz and the glamour of being in front of so many eyeballs, like that's, that's the scary part. It's very scary to do a Super Bowl ad, but again, you've seen companies or, or companies on the periphery that have done amazing things during the Super Bowl, like when the lights went out, New Orleans and, you know, Oreo said you can dunk in the dark, you know, just such a small little like free freebie thing that they did. And it just drove incredible behavior. So don't underestimate those big platforms. But again, um, very much think through what you're going to do in your approach, because interestingly, things can backfire, just like political campaigns. I think you have to, we would approach it like you would a political campaign, whether it is, was a big political type speech or some sort of statement. It, it It's really, you're, you're reaching such a massive audience that it can either um, work really well for you or, or people will find fault in it in whatever way possible that you would have never thought of. Yeah. So what what's something else that you would do day to day in that role? In addition, day to day, you know, a lot of time we had a lot of new media forums coming in to pitch us on different ways to get our brand in front of people. And being in that vantage point, having a big media budget, obviously a lot of people and companies want access to that. But I got to learn so much about where media, where, where it was moving, you know, at the time it was branded content or branded search, you know, within articles. Now that's not such new news, but at the time it was really cool because it was like getting in front of the consumer and they didn't realize that someone was getting in front of them, like a brand from a paid perspective. And so I, I loved the nature of people coming to you with new concepts and ideas. And I'm not an investor, but that must sometimes be what it must feel like to be an investor. You're always getting to see how such a diverse set of minds and people are thinking about innovative things. And, and I loved that about that job because it just, it, it, you know, soothed my curiosity. You know, you think about this theme of achieving more with less, right? Like that idea of, of you know, the, one of my favorite innovation authors, a guy named Stephen Johnson, his his book, Where Good Ideas Come From. There's this really great RSA talk, Royal Society for the Arts, like animated, you know, like those whiteboard animations, right? But he talks about like being in a liquid network of good ideas. So you like bounce into all these ideas and then go back to your office and actually work on your stuff. And it seems like for you guys to to have that access of a finger on the pulse of what's on its way had to be a serious competitive advantage for you deciding what to do next. Yeah. You know, I think it, it did, when you have a finger on the pulse like that, you're going to, it's, it is, it's going to, it's going to help you think differently or strengthen the actual actions, plans, whatever you have in market. Now it's a, it's a constant litmus test. And if you're in, you have to be open to it. You have to be a learner because if you think your way is the best way or the only way, or you've got it figured out, that's the first indication that you're probably not going to reach that billion dollar valuation or, or whatnot, because you yeah. need to, you need to be constantly learning and challenging everything that you've been doing. Which is so funny because as entrepreneurs, we're looking for an executable business model that we can just pour jet fuel on and it'll just recycle. And like, it would be so nice to finally be like, oh, we're done. We're done inventing. Now we just need to execute. But the world changes, right? It makes me think like, I mean, you know, a more cost-effective version of that. It's it's actually one of the reasons I started this show is like this great excuse to meet all these people I wish I knew. And it's like, I constantly get to bump into all these other ideas. You know, I'm not having a lot of other conversations about women's menopause and the business of that outside of this one, right? And yet there's always a takeaway. Every one of these, I get these takeaways, right? And so I guess my next question is, 
when you think about this idea of, of continual learning as a more with less strategy, how do you bring that to Genev? You know, first of all, because, you know, menopause has been so quote unquote uncharted or everything we do is pioneering. Like to your point, I had a, a mentor from kind of when I was in the corporate world, I had coffee with him. Uh, about two or three years into starting the business. And he's like, so, you know, how's it, how's it going? And I said, I would love one day where I got to repeat something because every time I, I'm constantly bumping into something new, I didn't know, or knew that I have to try or whatever. It was just like, I I'm hungry for that kind of a little bit of repetition and you don't get a lot of that. So when you think about doing more with less, you just have to, be comfortable with the constant newness and being getting, you know, this is so cliche, getting comfortable in the uncomfortable or in the unknown. But sometimes like right now, my business always feels like it's in a constant state of change, but it's also in varying degrees of change. And right now we're going through a lot of change, like on every aspect, our team, our financing, our product, you know, our channel, you know, and I kind of just love it. It's chaotic to so many people. And I think maybe sometimes my hardest job is steering my team through it and helping them feel comfortable in it as much as I am. And how I always kind of put that out there for them or present it to them is like, I'm I'm ahead of you in the headwinds and that's okay. And so when I bring things to you, I don't want to overwhelm you because I kind of crave that. And I've become a little bit more of a change junkie and, you know, unknown junkie. But I, I also have to realize that I need people who are the opposite of that. And so this notion of doing less with more, the more that you can surround yourself with diverse people that think and care about different things, knowing that it's going to make your job more challenging at times it's a good thing in the, in the, in the, in the long run, because it's the only way you can do, I think more with less, you've got to value those different viewpoints. Do you know, Gino Wickman's book you wrote with Mark Winters called rocket fuel. Have you heard of this one? I've heard of it. I haven't read it. You'd probably love it because the first chapter is describing exactly what you're talking about. He's like the person that starts the business is out in front. He calls them the visionary. You're like, you can land the big customers. You can, you can recruit the top staff. You always want to do something new though. And you give everyone else whiplash in the organization. <laughs> and so it's like, it talks about the second chapter is about like, get somebody who's like a good COO. He calls them integrators who can like, kind of like protect the rest of the organization from all your great ideas, Jess, you know, my <laughs> shiny penny syndrome. Yeah. Right. Uh, what's funny is my, my mentor of the last 20 years, who's my business partner and my brother, who's been a partner for 15 years, my brother and I cover such different parts of the spectrum that I drive him nuts, like really drive him nuts with all my, and then we could do this. And 15 years from now, that'll probably allow us to do this. And he's like, what are we doing 15 minutes from now, Jess? You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but aren't you glad that he's got that perspective? Yes. Especially because we've had my mentor and our partner, John, to like play referee. Cause he's like one of my best friends, but we can drive each other nuts. And like, I feel like finally we've gotten better to this place where he's like, okay, do you actually mean it? Or are we just like exploring ideas at this point? Cause he's such an efficiency hound. He does not want to try something if we're not going to do it and then throw it in the trash, you know? Mm -hmm. And like, I'm ready to throw stuff in the trash before we've even finished it, you know? So we're, we're getting, we're getting better at like how to not have the diversity in personality types causes much friction. But it's, it's amazing to me because like, you know, I'm the guy who lands the multi-million dollar contract, but would forget to send the invoice to get the money, you know? Yeah. Nothing yeah. is worse to me than talking to a client and they say, can you just write that up? I'm like, no, no, I can't write that up. Yeah. That's overwhelming. That's overwhelming to me, you know? And, but it, but it's absolutely true because then it's, it's a bit the follow through, but it's also reflective of that's not what motivated you to land the multi-million dollar contract. It was, it was the sport. Yeah, it was the game. It was, you love that, the action. And I think the more you recognize as an entrepreneur or whatever role you're in, what part of the sport you really love and you're good at, and then surround yourself with people who are good at other parts of it, that's going to be to your advantage. Well, okay. I know I've been given lots of book recommendations this episode, but you know, top, my top two books of the year, one is Hook Point by Brendan Kane. If you don't know that one, every, everyone who has to sell anything marketing needs that one. But the other one is Who Not How. Ben Hardy wrote it with the guy who started Strategic Coach, Dan Sullivan. And it's basically like, quit doing all that stuff that you're terrible at, Jess, and don't like doing. <laughs> and like, figure out how to hire, get unpaid interns, 
partner, joint venture, like, but quit doing that stuff. You're not any good at it. You're not making progress because you're doing stuff you're not good at and you don't like. Just just quit. And it's like, but I should be able to do this. Like, you know, I have all this like internal shame that like, you know, I would probably be fired from a lot of $10 an hour jobs because I can't do spelling and grammar or stuff like this. You know what I mean? And he's just like, no, own it hard. So yeah, yeah. Well, and I think sometimes too, as the leader of an organization or whatever, you feel, I often get trapped in the, well, I've got to learn how to do it first myself. So I know how to hire for it. Or I've got to show that I can, I can be the scrappy entrepreneur that can tackle it all. And then I, I hire for it. And I think that I, I sometimes can't, can't even see where I'm being a bottleneck and where I'm not until a little bit hit a wall or somebody points it out. And so it's it's just a danger trap that I fall into all the time. But I grew up on a cattle ranch in the middle of North Dakota. And like the the notion of a good, strong work ethic and being able to do anything was just drilled into my head, just like cleaning your plate. And it's not always good for you to do those things, but that's you know something I'm working on. Yeah, I love it. Well, let's, let's go on. A, I like this back and forth we've done. Let's talk about director of consumer media at Microsoft. How was that different from what you were doing at Xbox? You know, consumer media was just more products. So it was Xbox, it was Surface, it was Office, it was Windows, any products that were touching our consumers. And so I was less aligned with one product in particular, and my role essentially just broadened across a portfolio and thinking about how does this same consumer consumer buy multiple of our things. So it's the whole cross sell upsell, you know, conundrum or opportunity, I should say that any business gets to work on. It was a lot more team leadership too. I, I had a bigger team. And so part of it was Jill, you're not doing the work as much, but you are, you are empowering a group of really amazing people to do that. And so I had some good lessons. I had to learn some new skills, obviously in empowering people, but then also, again, my KPI essentially changed from trying to drive revenue on one product to really trying to drive collective revenue across a number of them. So I'm going to ask you a question. I ask lots of entrepreneurs, leaders, when you have this situation where it's like, it's almost like, do I teach my four-year-old how to clean up the mess or do I do it myself? Cause it'd be so much faster. I do it myself, but then I'm going to have to do it forever. So, so many of us, like we got promoted because we, we were a high performer or you know, the reason an investor gave us money to start this business is because we are a high performer. And like, let's face it, if people were as good as us, they'd be starting their own company, not coming to work for us sometimes, right? At certain parts. So when it comes to this balance of like having patience, having patience, teaching the four-year-old how to clean up the mess or, you know, teaching an employee a new skill set or letting them be worse at it than you would be. How do you, how do you walk that line of like, no, this is the time I just need to clean up the mess versus no, this is the time I need to bite my tongue and be more patient and let them do it worse than me. You know, I think you have to prioritize it amongst everything else that's going on for you. And my greatest like challenge uh, in personally myself, I'm really good at a broad, like doing a ton of stuff and getting, I'm very efficient, but I'm not great at prioritizing. And so when I've got someone who I, I'm in that moment of, okay, I'm just going to let them do this kind of quote unquote marginally or less better than I think what I would do, I have to put it, I have to fact check myself around, okay, is this in my top three priorities? Because I'm really working on being focused because this is, these are things that nobody else can do except for me. And that's what keeps me off of that employee's back or that person's back around coaching, diving in, et cetera, or just doing it myself. I always go back to, no, what are the only, what are the to only the things that I can do as a CEO of this company? It's raise money and it's hire talent. And, you know, other people can be responding to customer requests or upselling, cross-selling them on things or whatever. Would they do it in the same way I would? Probably not. Would they do it as well? Sometimes better, you know? So I, I, I use my own kind of litmus test around what are the things that only I can be doing for this company that need to be done right now versus the old Jill would say, oh, I could do those things that only me can do as a CEO at night. And I'll jump into this now during the day when others are, you know, and I'm kind of like, nope, that's a trap. Don't go there. So I, I, I wrestle with that every day. It's a, it's a great question. Okay. If you get to this book, the who, not how book, you're going to love it because I think you just gave the sales pitch for the book right there. Awesome. Um, so I am interested in this idea of, of portfolio where you aren't just, you know, where, where you've got multiple offerings, you know, you guys are doing diverse things of 
physical supplements you're sending to somebody and, you know, digital services and these different things. How has that portfolio mindset helped you at Genev? You know, when we, we built it in, in, in increments, we didn't build it all at once because we didn't have that insight on the consumer. So we started with the physical products and set up an e-commerce shop. Excuse me. We did that because that was the asset that we had in hand at the time. My co-founder had created a feminine moisturizer for women after her time at Neutrogena. And so we had this product. So we built a brand, put up an e-commerce storefront. So we had something to sell. Just get into the market as quickly as you can with whatever assets you have, because you're going to learn a lot more than just researching it all. So once we did that, then we started to do some research that's when we built the content and the community platform. From that community, we learned that they needed access to medical providers. And that's when we built the telemedicine. So we built our platform based upon what the customer told us to do and what they needed. Or in some cases, you know, it was a combination of customer need as well as foresight of what they don't have today that we think could modernize care for this particular consumer. And so obviously we learned from the outside in versus building it from scratch all ourselves. And then as we think about how these elements, these three elements, well, they can defocus you across any one of the three. The, for us, this is because the reason why no one's really ever cracked the nut on modern menopausal care is because they haven't really approached this consumer from the, the notion that she doesn't know what she's going through. So education is fundamental, but how do you monetize and make money from education? Well, you kind of, it's really hard unless you're like a, a full-on media company. And we didn't want to be that. We wanted to be a healthcare provider. And so when you look at any community, so we started studying like communities that are in transition, people going through addiction, people trying to lose weight, women having babies. They're all these communities that are in transition from one state to another. What was important in getting them through that journey? Education and community, experts, access to experts, health providers, you name it. And in some cases, products for symptom relief. When you look at Weight Watchers, everyone used to go there and, and still do. They've kind of reinvented themselves to for their services, to lose weight, get on the program. But then Weight Watchers keyed into, well, how about we become the one-stop shop and also give them food products that are part of their program, and then they'll buy our food products from us. And then they also were watching, oh, these women are like talking amongst each other because they're a support system for each other going through this change. And it's, it's keeping them accountable and it's helping them succeed. Let's add on a community and monetize it. And so when you study a business model like that, even though we're not in the, the business of managing weight and you can say, oh, Weight Watchers is like this sleepy older company. I think their business model was super insightful. It didn't all pop up at once, but they used something that moved their customer from point A to point B where the consumer wanted to be. And then they also, those elements kept the relationship sticky for when the woman gains the weight again and wants to come back. You know, there's elements of, oh, great. This community was with me the first time I lost the weight. They're there for me again. And it becomes predictable. So it's a little bit of a long answer to your question around, why the platform, but for our audience in transition, these three components are, are a must. And we've learned that through experimentation with them. You know, it's interesting, the thoughts that came to me as you were talking about that. I was trying to apply it to my life, right? And one of the things that Greystoke Media is doing is we're, we're going to start having more live events. They're digital this year, but we're moving towards in-person. So our first one is called the Family Wealth Council. We've got three different billionaire families and a couple of other family offices that are part of that. And it's, it's that like, experience of everybody thinks you don't have any problems because you're rich and you know like some of that right but one of the next ones that we're that we'll likely launch at some point sooner and later is helping ceos they're so good at selling their product but they've never sold a company before often so like how do you build your company to make it the most sellable or how do you you know build it so that you'll get the highest multiple when you do sell stuff but one of the things that not everybody knows is like 75% of entrepreneurs end up disappointed with the sale of their business because they they golf for like three months straight and realize like, oh, I really didn't plan, I really didn't plan my next adventure. Like I'm depressed. I just lost my identity. Life's actually kind of boring. You know, it used to be so exciting, right? It's like special ops guys coming home from war, right? Mm -hmm. And and the other one is looking back, going like, oh, I didn't position it well enough. I actually could have gotten an extra five million if I'd had just done this for a couple of years ahead of time. You know, these kind of things. But what's funny is I hadn't thought about 
making that analogy of everybody else who's in transitions and looking at unrelated groups in transition to think through that process for the CEO cohorts where we've been talking to you about doing this. That's an interesting insight to, because there would be commonalities of any human in transition, right? Yeah, 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 it is. And I think that's why you see communities pop up, whether it is, again, new moms or people who love a certain car or, you know, people looking to buy a house. You just, you go online and look and see what other people are doing and what they've learned from. That's why reviews are so popular. And so you've got to, you surround yourself with like people. And I think, especially when you're doing something that you've never done before, you need that intelligence, you need precedent, you need insights from other people, and then you go through it. And sometimes you have to just live through it. You have to experience it yourself, but surrounding yourself with others as much as possible that have done it or are going through it too, certainly brings a lot of insight and and companionship. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Well, maybe my last more with less question here is, you know, having having a portfolio versus focusing on the one thing our company does, right? That could be, you know, that loss of focus could be a problem, right? Where there could also be this like the network effect of like, we are helping in these multiple areas and it ends up being a stronger offering because we are such a community, because there is physical products and services. So I'm interested in any thoughts you have for, entrepreneurs, you know, and anybody could be a nonprofit person trying to figure out, should we just stick to this service that we do? Or should we be offering more? And like, somebody like me wants to do everything, right? And I know that's caused me so many problems. And yet, does that mean I have, I can only do one thing forever? You know, so I'm interested in any thoughts you have about making the uh, decision tree on that one. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. You know, I think you have to, you can't, you've got to look at what motivates you. And so for me, selling just that original feminine moisturizer was not motivating for me. And I could just feel it in my soul. If we only sold over-the-counter wellness products, that would not be motivating for me because I love data. I love a platform. I love a platform play because it has so many directions it can go. I want to live with this consumer for 20 years and beyond. Like I, I want lifetime value that like the potential of that with this consumer is immense but it also maps to my personal passion. And so don't ignore what your gut is telling you about what excites you, but do be patient enough. If to get to that, you've got to focus on one aspect of it for a while, but then have a little bit of the roadmap or the confidence to know that you're going to get there. And, and I guess I think that's the best advice I can give because some of us are platform platform oriented and some of us are vertical. I'm going to win here first and only do this thing amazingly well. And we need that too. So I think really look inward on that one. You know, what's interesting about that is we are naturally going to be better at something that we like. Yeah. Right. And so knowing this isn't my thing, even if that is the right answer for others, that doesn't make it the right answer for us necessarily. Right. 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 Well, listen, this has been great. Obviously, we think everybody should be checking out Genev, which is G-E-N-N-E-V. Uh, you can, you know, if you're not an ideal client, you probably got a, a mom, a spouse, a sister, somebody that maybe you can tell about it. Maybe maybe to end here, Jill, great name, by the way, I've got a sister named Jill. Awesome. What's something that we didn't cover that, that you want to end with? You know, I would say, I would say as an entrepreneur, anybody that is trying to really figure out, am I the only one who believes this and nobody else does? And I'm like, you know, is there a reason why I'm so like bullish on this concept or this idea or whatever? Or am I just one of those overly optimistic entrepreneurs that has a pipe dream that isn't reality? I think that for anyone who's fighting that, like for me for a long time, I don't know how many advisors said, why did you pick a business that's so hard if you wanted to do a startup? Well, I didn't want to do a startup. I wanted to solve a problem. And that's what motivated me. And and this has been a, a really hard business to raise capital for, or even to drive traction for, but it's so ingrained in me. And I knew that with a, such a large market that has been suffering, we would eventually prevail. And we still haven't, we're not there yet. Believe me, we're just getting started. But I, I'd say I'd, I'd leave it with for anyone who feels like, you know, they're being told that their idea is just kind of outlandish. Look again, a little bit around why you chose that. Is it just for revenue? Is it because you believe, you know, it's it's ingrained and it's backed by data points that you can stand by? 
and then stay firm and dig in and be patient and do the scrappy stuff that doesn't feel like it moves mountains, but it'll move little bits at a time. <laughs> I love it. That's such a great pep talk. <laughs> I need that for me. That's great. Well, listen, thanks for coming on the show. Great talk and congrats on all the success. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Fun, fun talk. Really fun to talk about the business from this vantage point. And it's, it's also fun to not be talking to, you know, a bunch of people in menopause. I, I think it's refreshing. And I, while I love my community, it's also fun to talk, talk with others about different aspects of this business. So thanks for having me, Jess. Yeah, you bet. Bye, everyone.